0: Before Jesus ascended the throne, he told his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and and here's the quote, wait for the promise of the Father. He reminded them that John the baptizer submerged people in water, but they would be immersed in the Holy Spirit within a few days, see Acts 1, four through five. Now, if we look back to the days of John's baptizing in the Jordan River, we hear him clearly say the same thing in Luke 3, 16. Here's what he says, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this baptism occurs at Pentecost. You might know the story. 120 of the disciples wait in the upper room. The promised day arrives, and they begin speaking in other tongues. Acts 2.4. A crowd comes to them. Remember, perfect love expels fears we talked about in a previous talk. So the people clearly aren't intimidated by what's happening and the way people are often intimidated by modern day expressions of tongues speaking that are often pooched as freedom and worship and letting the Holy Spirit have his way. People are pulled to authentic expressions of faith like bits of metal to a magnet. So as the people, many of them foreigners who are in Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, understand the 120 speaking in the languages of their unique homelands, they wonder, how is this possible? Well, Peter quotes the prophet Joel, explaining that God foretold years ago that he would pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's a quote of Acts 2.17, quoting Joel 2.28-32. And then after quoting a few more verses and threading them through the story of Jesus's death and resurrection, he suggests that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God via his ascension. That's Acts 2.33. And relevant to our conversation here, Peter says, Jesus did this. He just poured the Holy Spirit on us like John the Baptist and Jesus himself said would happen. So what do we make of all of this? Well, When I was 26 years old, I started a church. Like most new congregations, ours attracted some bold leaders as well as a few oddballs who were seeking some place, any place, where they could push their agenda. Now that doesn't mean that the agenda pushers were manipulative. They just had some things they felt were extremely important to them and should be important to the larger body of Christ. After being told no, to countless established organizations, a new church was the ideal, perfect place in their mind to present and then implement their ideas. Well, one such world changer was a guy I'll call Van, an oversized fellow who took delight in positing to me every single Sunday evening after worship that the Lord told me that you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, this 30-something guy was socially awkward He had a learning disability, and he had a knack for unintentionally disrupting the flow of just about everything that we did. I judged the messenger as unworthy, so I never gave his message a second hearing. After hearing him thoroughly the first time, I just tuned him out. And maybe you've done the same thing. Perhaps you've done so for other purposes, for reasons not as shallow as mine. In my experience, people often oppose the mere idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because, like me, they don't like the package in which the gift presents itself. Or, as I experienced multiple times, proponents of the encounter often, wrongly, present it as if Christians don't receive the Holy Spirit at conversion and therefore need this baptism in order to have the Spirit of God. Omitting many of the verses in Scripture, they suggest that the Holy Spirit is given to a Christian at this baptism of the Holy Spirit, not at conversion. This creates a Christian caste system in which some people feel inferior or second class or feel like they've been told that they're missing something. So, if you've traveled with me for the last seven, eight, nine nine talks by the time you include the introduction from this LifeLift material, I'm, I'm hoping that that will buy me a little bit of credibility and that you'll trust me just enough to roll with me for this talk and probably two or three more as I discuss this baptism of the Holy Spirit issue with you. After all, the term baptism of the Holy Spirit, it does appear in Scripture and it's the holy spirit who works through us via the spiritual gifts that really I'm wanting to talk about oh goodness probably 6 or 7 episodes from now so at some point we've got to deal with this issue now, furthermore i believe that this filling this baptism or this whatever you want to call it this encounter is the means whereby the spiritual gifts begin working through your life so if you're interested in discovering and then in using your gifts I need you to make your way with me for probably 20, 30 minutes today and then two or three more 20 to 30 minute talks. Okay, disclaimer aside. There are four concepts that we must hold intention according to the Bible. After listing them, that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to walk you through each of these one by one, and we're going to open up the text of Scripture to do it. Here are the four points for this episode. Number one, you are undeniably given the Holy Spirit at conversion. Number two, even though you are given the Holy Spirit at conversion, more awaits for you number three most people do not wait for the holy spirit they don't wait for that more number four there is an additional encounter or you could even say encounters plural with the holy spirit let's walk through them number one the holy spirit moves in instantly so the first point is this you are undeniably given the holy spirit at conversion like I've mentioned a few times, we become one spirit with Christ at salvation. That's in 1 Corinthians 6.17. At this point, we are not two separate entities. We are two, us and the Holy Spirit, that have become one. According to the Bible, we are united in spirit with God. In doing this, Jesus seals us with the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1.13, which is the Lord's guarantee that he's returning for you. You are marked as his. So, what's a seal, and what does it mean to be sealed by the Spirit of God? Well, throughout the Bible, we see that a seal is an irreversible, irrevocable edict. Things sealed by kings became binding laws that the king himself could not even rescind the sealed decree. Uh, In the story of Daniel in the lion's den, for instance, we see the seal actually works against a king's wishes. This is Daniel 6.17. Many of the government leaders became jealous of Daniel and his relationship with the king. As they knew Daniel was a man of integrity, they realized they would have to trap Daniel on some technicality in order to banish him from their ranks. So, as the scripture says, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Daniel 6, 4 and 5. They tricked King Darius by flattering him into issuing a decree that Here's the quote. Anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except for praying to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel 6-7. Darius signed the decree and then he placed his seal upon it. The law became set in stone. When the officials saw Daniel praying, as was his daily custom, they reminded Darius of the decree. Broken-hearted, the king was left with no option but to feed Daniel to the lions. Seals were, they are, unchangeable decrees. The Holy Spirit has already permanently marked you as God's own. Well, you need the Holy Spirit, Van told me. I heard it every single Sunday. Uh, no, I don't. I have the Spirit. He lives inside of me, I said. But get this, although I was right, Van was too, and that leads me into the second point of our discussion here. Number two, even though you were given the Holy Spirit at conversion, more awaits for you. Okay, that's the idea here. There's more. So, a question. Do you remember what happened to the disciples when Jesus appeared to them in the upper room? Here's what the scripture says. Jesus showed them proofs that he is alive. That's in John 20, 19 through 20. They believed intellectually in him. At this point, he breathed the Holy Spirit on them, according to John 20, verse 22. This is exactly what happens at our salvation encounter. Number one, we're awakened to the truth that Jesus is Lord. We believe. Number two, the Holy Spirit steps out of heaven and into us, sealing us, making us one with God. Here's where the Upper Room story gets interesting, though. Luke's version of the encounter is somewhat different than John's. If you look in Luke 24:44 and following, you'll see it. He includes the part about Jesus showing them the proofs that he is alive, and he emphasizes that the disciples then believed in him. That's Luke 24:45, but rather than including the part about Jesus breathing the spirit on them, Luke says that Jesus encouraged them to wait for the Holy Spirit. He seems to infer that they don't yet possess the spirit, even though they've been given it in the same episode, according to John. So you just compare Luke 24, 49 and John 20, And get this, it's highly likely that both men were in the upper room at the same time when this happened. So what do we make of this supposed discrepancy? Well, perhaps the men emphasize two different things. Perhaps John assures us that the Holy Spirit moves into us at conversion, We're sealed. We become one with our Savior. And perhaps Luke encourages us to pursue the more, that we continually awaken to new dimensions of what the Lord wants to do with us. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus reiterates to wait for the Holy Spirit. He reminds them of this again at the Ascension. That's in Acts 1 4, which is another book that Luke also wrote. Now, for a while, this teaching proved difficult for me to reconcile with other parts of the Bible. You see, Paul tells us that we've received the fullness of Christ. That's Colossians 2.9, who dwells in us. Christ dwells in us. We read that he is in us and that we are actually in him in Colossians 2.10. We are totally full, ready to overflow. At One time in my life, I felt burdened to tie these two loose ends in Scripture together as if I could be right or Van could be right, but certainly not both of us. I no longer feel the need to create a tidy answer. There are some things that we can and should be able to hold in tension. In in fact, in an upcoming talk, I'll go through this, and I'll show you how people from every single stripe of Christian theology, from charismatic to reformed, no worries if you don't know what those labels mean, but they've all argued the exact same thing for centuries. They simply use different terms to describe the encounter of the Holy Spirit. and Those words, some of those we embrace and others we avoid like the plague. And that creates a lot of the confusion. Now, by the way, if you look in the show notes for this episode, I've put a chart in there, just a graph that shows you perhaps what I think that John and Luke are emphasizing. Again, two different realities of what the Holy Spirit does in us. That leads us to point number three about those who choose to wait for the Lord. The reality is that most people do not wait for the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that 120 people were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. They were praying and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus commanded. Uh, This is in Acts 115. You see that number tally up. Now, remember, he breathed the Holy Spirit on them in the upper room, and he told them to wait for more. Again, hold in tension the verses John 20, 22, and Luke 22, 49. Rather than just assuming one man is right and the other is wrong, you and I just decided that we'll hold these truths in tension. Now, that said, even though only... Only 120 people were present in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. This was a mere 10 days after Jesus told them to wait, by the way. We know upwards of 500 people saw Jesus post-resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15.6. This means that, clearly, less than 25% waited for this empowerment. That may be the case today. We are a generation that has a form of godliness, but does not walk in its power. And this is something that Paul actually told Timothy, he cautioned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5, that this would actually occur. People would have a form of godliness, but not walk in the power of the supernatural. Now, I know what happened is most likely life moved on for most of those people. Most of the 500 that did not wait— you know I've reread the text a few times there's not a place where Jesus says to wait until Pentecost or to wait for 10 days nor did he describe what it would look like when the Holy Spirit finally came so they didn't know what they were waiting for no one had experienced this yet nor did they know how long it would take. It's hard to wait when you don't know what you're waiting for or you don't know how long that pause will be but, For those who decided to go all in and wait for whatever, for however long, something incredible came, and it really, it engulfed them, and that leads us to point number four, which is, again, we can see it, and we have the beauty of of hindsight, because we know what we're waiting for. Uh, Number four, it started at Pentecost, and then it continues, meaning there is this additional encounter with the Holy Spirit. And this happens subsequent to conversion, and it's something that we should seek. Even if we're scared of the word baptism, like baptism in the Holy Spirit, that phrase, it may actually just kind of, it may set you on edge. It It may alarm you, but that is the word that's used in the Bible. We can't reinvent the dictionary simply because people have misused the word. We need to dive into the text and discover how the word is actually presented. Now, I'll discuss the baptism issue more in depth later on, but for right now, what I want to do is I want to look at the meaning of Pentecost, because to understand the Word and to understand what's happening, we've really got to understand what was happening at the feast that the disciples were celebrating. Okay, so here here it is. The Old Testament actually stipulated that God's people, that all of them were to come before him three times a year at the place that he would choose. Uh, We read about this in Leviticus 23, just for some of you who like to deep dive. And there's where you read about the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. Uh, You can find that in Leviticus 23, 15 through 22. You can find it in Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. You can find it in Numbers 28, 26 through 31. It's also actually even mentioned in the book of Exodus right after they leave, go through the Red Sea, Exodus 23, 16. So here's what would happen. They would eventually go to the temple, to God's house, and in the temple, God's presence lived among the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. That's the place the high priest entered once a year on the Day of Atonement to make restitution for the sins of the people. And these three feasts, they were Passover, they were Pentecost, and they were tabernacles. Jews from around the world, they sojourned to the Holy City during these times of pilgrimage, most of them speaking foreign languages of their native countries. Literally, hundreds of thousands converged, making arrangements for their religious obligations. The city, artificially overcrowded for the celebration, it swelled with anticipation, so much so that really the modern-day celebrations that we have of Christmas and Easter actually pale in comparison to what they were experiencing. So it's no accident that God chose to reveal himself in a deeper way at each of these festivals. Um, Again, they were known as Passover. They were known as Pentecost. They were known as tabernacles. And these were uh, mind-blowing when you study them. Passover anticipated the death of Jesus on the cross as the sacrifice, the lamb that was on the door frames of the post, Uh, during the Passover of Exodus. uh, Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law. It anticipated the coming of the Spirit. Tabernacles actually anticipates the return of Christ. That's something I'll have to talk about another time. Let me give you more about Pentecost right now. Now, this feast, it has several names in the Bible. In the Hebrew, it was called, uh, here's one pronunciation, Shavut, which means weeks, from which the expression that we have, feast of weeks, is derived. Uh, Deep dive, Exodus 34, 22, and Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 10, more about that. That designation, it's taken from God's command to celebrate seven full weeks after the Sabbath of the Passover week, placing this festival 50 days after the Passover. Go to Leviticus twenty-three, fifteen to see that. Now, Greek-speaking Jews referred to the festival, to the feast, as Pentecosta, meaning 50 days. That explains why the feast has a different name in the New Testament than it does in the Old Testament, because in the New Testament, the language they used was largely Greek. New Testament, written in Greek. Old Testament, largely written in Hebrew. Another name for this feast, it was the Day of first fruits, based on offering of new grain and two loaves of bread baked from the new grain uh, that were given as a thanksgiving for the wheat harvest. You see that in Numbers 28-26. Uh, The name Feast of Harvest, it was based on the same harvest season. Uh, Now, this is important, too, because what we're about to see is that the 120 who were in the upper room during Pentecost, they model something that's available to everyone everywhere. They are the first fruits of what later occurs, according to Peter's own declaration, when he preaches this long sermon in Acts 2.39. Their experience is available to everyone. And in addition, uh, certain passages were read. The scripture, not everybody had the text. Like we have multiple Bibles today and we can get the Bible on our smartphone apps. They didn't have this. We can look up the scripture online and just read. So what would happen is people would gather together and someone would have a scroll or a parchment or a fragment and they would read this aloud. Many people even had the scripture memorized and they would recite this aloud so family and friends gathered together to listen to the following during pentecost uh, they would listen to exodus 19 and particularly about verse 20 god's appearance to the people at mount sinai uh, they would listen to ezekiel 1 and 2 where ezekiel had this vision of god in which he appeared as fire and wind Um, They would listen to other passages from the minor prophets that really describe the wind, the power of God. Now, it's important to start catching the parallels there because what actually happens at Pentecost in Acts 2 is something that they were reading. If you read each of the Old Testament passages that I just mentioned, you see that they all contain imagery of wind and fire. Like Mount Sinai had this fire over the mountain and that is exactly what occurs at Pentecost, is the Holy Spirit moves in like this rushing wind and tongues of fire land on each of the people that are in the upper room. So it's possible that the 120 were reading these texts right as the Spirit moved in. And if so, the text literally came to life as they studied together. Now, by the time of Jesus... The predominant focus of the celebration was this feast time was when God had given the law at Sinai. Now remember, Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover, which is right at the number of days it took the children of Israel to move from the Passover to the foot of Mount Sinai where Moses delivered to them the Ten Commandments. Uh, The text reveals that the Israelites left Egypt on Passover, arriving at Sinai 10 days later. Moses hiked the mountain to meet with God, 40 days later, so now we're at 50, Moses comes down and returns with the Torah, with the law. That's a phrase that often means, refers to the Ten Commandments. Now we use Torah to refer really to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also referred to as the books of Moses. Uh, while atop the mountain, the people actually broke the covenant and remember, they they really had an idol, golden calf. Uh, the text infers that there was a, an orgy going on. 3,000 people die. Now, footnote. Jesus died on Passover as the Passover lamb. Remember that. He ascended the Mount of Olives 40 days later, and then he ascended up to the right hand of the Father, and then 10 days after that. So the time is tracking The Holy Spirit came down on the 120. And when you read the text from Acts 2, when Peter preaches, 3,000 people are saved. So start noticing the parallels. 3,000 die at Sinai. 3,000 are saved and come to new life at Pentecost. Okay, now I'm getting ahead of myself. The parallels what I'm getting at, are shocking, and they're obvious proofs of God's careful planning, his intention, ensuring that the Holy Spirit would come at a time when the Holy Spirit would rightly be understood. The new teacher, the Holy Spirit, would illumine Scripture as Jesus had promised and would apply the law in a redemptive way, pushing people to grace. In this way, Pentecost is as foundational for followers of Jesus as Sinai had been for the Jewish people. Each year, during the celebration of Pentecost, people visited the Temple Mount to celebrate, catch that, to celebrate, not mourn, celebrate the giving of the law. And you need to remember, the people of God saw the law as something to be enjoyed, not as a legalistic document. It's said that when a rabbi read the text before preaching in the synagogues, he would take a scroll and he would dance around the room before opening it as other people followed in this parade behind him. I've actually seen this happen i went to a jewish service uh, it was a messianic jewish congregation where they had the scripture and before it was read uh, the, the rabbi went and he retrieved it was it was a book uh, of the bible not a scroll but he he danced and they celebrated and many people got in the train and they celebrated moving through the room And so if you grab that, that will dramatically change the way you see Jesus in Luke 4 when he visited the synagogue and preached his first sermon. He would have served not only as the lead teacher that day, but as the lead dancer during the worship service. Of course, some people later took it as a legalistic document. But most people stood in awe because God had spoken to them. He wanted to make himself known. He wanted to be intimate with his people. And so it's, it's important to understand all of the above. That's a lot of information, I know. But it starts putting together the context in which the Spirit of God falls, descends at Pentecost. And once we understand that, we can start fleshing out what happens to the disciples in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit's going to come with power. So, get all this. couple bullet points here for you. And I want you to just kind of grab these, and then I'll come back in another episode, and we'll take it even farther. So, Jesus ascends to heaven 40 days after the resurrection. That's Acts 1-3, just as Moses ascended Sinai. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would be poured out on them very soon, so that they should wait for it or wait for for the spirit, which is not an it. It's it's a person. It's a relational, relational being. Just as Moses promised, he would return with everything God said for them to do. That was in Deuteronomy 5, 4 through 5. Fire was present at both events. A literal fire at Sinai and tongues of fire in the book of Acts. Uh, for centuries, Jews read Ezekiel's prologue aloud as they celebrated Pentecost. Ezekiel's vision of God's presence included fire and wind. This is Ezekiel 1, 4 through 28, if you want to read that. When the Spirit came to the house where the disciples were staying, Luke reports that the Spirit appeared as wind and fire as well, such that the symbolism would be crystal clear to readers of the book of Acts and to the crowds who were gathered in Jerusalem for that particular celebration, uh, according to Acts 2, 1 and following. Here's the idea. The black and white of the written text, it became alive, and it really happened. Just as they were reading about wind and fire, the wind and fire came. They they experienced something Jesus intended for all people and had written in the text hundreds of years beforehand. When that happened, God moved out of the house, out of the temple where he had once revealed himself, and he moved out, out of like the formal temple that Solomon built and he moved into a new temple into the community of the followers of Jesus who, who are now collectively the temple. Uh, his people became his new dwelling place, his true temple. Again, read this in 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17 and in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. That develops the idea even farther. And just as the temple had reserved as a reminder of God's presence in the world, now his people... Serve as a reminder of his presence in the world. We discussed this in one of the previous episodes when I talked about living the presence of Christ. It's with that frame of reference of God seeking to be present with power among his people that we see the most obvious happening at Pentecost. That's the occurrence that's... (laughs) Most often associated with the day, speaking in tongues, which according to Peter is a result of Jesus pouring out the Spirit on all of his people because he baptized them. Here's what I'm going to do I'm going to crash land this episode. If you look in the show notes, I'm going to put a comparison chart between Pentecost and and Sinai. And when I come back in the next episode, we're going to actually discuss this even farther. And what did this tongue speaking thing look like? What does it mean for now? How does the Holy Spirit come in power? And we will pick that up as we walk just bit by bit by bit through all of the occurrences of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. I'll talk to you again in the next episode.